M and K Talk YA now presents Crooked Kingdom Part 1 of the Six of Crows series by Lee Bardugo. Welcome back to M&K Talk YA. I'm Marissa Snyder. And I'm Kitty Bradford. And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast. And this week we are talking about the first half of Crooked Kingdom, which is in the Six of Crows series by Lee Bardugo. And it is set in the same world as the Grishaverse, which is the world we visited for Shadow and Bone. I don't really want to leave this world. Can we just stay here forever yeah. and like live here and maybe have a retirement home here? <laughs> Yes. It's such a great world. And we read up to part four. Did we say that? Or did we oh, no, say we that? <laughs> so um, if, you, if you haven't read that far, go read before we tell you everything. We read up to part four, The Unexpected Visitor. I haven't paid as much attention to the titles of each part this time. Sometimes I spend a lot of energy on it and sometimes I don't. Um, I'm trying to think of which ones we had. I mean, A Killing Wind was one of them. The first part was... Forsaken. Oh, very sinister, yeah. <laughs> Forsaken. And um, then brick by brick. Oh, I like that one. Because that's Kaz's motto for revenge. Of how he's going to destroy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So I, I, do, <clears throat> I do like this, this book. Um, I have to say it was a little bit of a come down from, or not a letdown, but it was just a little bit of a come down from Six of Crows. Because the heist in that book is just so exciting. And now it's like they're on, they have this plan to get revenge, but it's just not as spectacular as the first book, I think, personally. Yeah, but it also feels in some ways more real because of that, I think. Like, this is like more of their like everyday life, I feel like. But also, this time they know, I mean, Van Eck knows that like they're not an anonymous. Is someone going to hit the ice castle? It's like Vanette kind of knows that they're out to get him. Yeah, it's more personal. And, and knows who they are. Yeah, it's more personal. And I mean, there's still plenty of plotting and like clever twists and Kaz always being one step ahead. Um, but I don't know. It just, it does feel a little bit more mundane than this, like breaking into this really cool ice court. Now they're like breaking into grain silos and like breaking into someone's safe and... And it, it seems, it doesn't seem like it's big of a deal, right? Like, yeah. I feel like they're smarter than Van Eck, so it's just a matter of time until they outsmart him, versus, like, the, the Ice Castle felt like a, a formidable, like, opponent. <laughs> For sure, yeah. And, I mean, uh, Van Eck, I mean, he thinks he's so clever, and he thinks he, I mean, when, when he when he caught Inej um, climbing out of the vents, I mean, that was pretty good that he kind of was tempting her with the open vent because he knew she'd try to escape Mm -hmm. but i mean for the most part Kaz just always is coming out on top yeah i'm actually more curious to see what's going on with these shoe fighter angel demon things oh yeah because i think vanek on his own is not necessarily the biggest threat but there's a lot more there's a lot more moving pieces in some ways in this in this version yeah that's a good point and 
I'm really curious to know about who these soldiers are that have been tailored, who have wings, and they're, like, targeting Grisha. And metal under their skin, and yeah. Yeah, what is that about? So, I forget, Shu just want to kill Grisha, or or they do experiments on them? What's the Shu? experimenting. Okay. And they're the ones who are experimenting on the fabricators, um, and and who have, I think, made these tailored soldiers. Yeah, using Jurda Perim. Yeah. So that's another unexpected twist, I guess. (laughs) And it's kind of fun because we're getting more backstory for some other characters now. Oh, yes. Okay. Which one do you want to talk about? Um, Jesper. He's becoming my favorite. (laughs) I I like him a lot. And and also, it's like where we just ended. But I thought it was really... Well, it's interesting to see his dad in general. And like we already knew he was kind of lying to him about going to college and... You know, that he came from a farm and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of interesting to see his story about his mom, too. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And how she was she was a fabricator, too, it seems. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of, it was kind of sad because, like, you could see Jesper really idolized her. Like, she taught him to shoot, and that was really important to him. And she taught him to ride. But she also kind of taught him how to use his power in secret. And it was kind of like a secret that she kept from her husband. Yeah, but also she wasn't afraid to help people with it versus, like, once she died, it it seems like he took that secretive thing to the extreme. Like, she didn't depend on her power or, like, flaunt her power before, but Mm -hmm. I don't feel like she necessarily kept it as secret as Jesper did as a result of his dad making him promise that he would. Right, because she says that um, she won't, she doesn't want to let her son be guided by fear, that's mm-hmm. what she says. So she's like, no, I'm going to teach him because I won't hide my talents. But I think the the fear that Jesper's dad had was that she would be taken by slavers. Yeah. And actually, I had the impression until we heard the story that that was what happened to her. Once mm-hmm. we like kind of had the hint that she was Grisha, I assume that's why he was so fearful because someone had taken his mom. But it was it was kind of a much better story, but also sad in so many ways that she was helping that kid who... By extracting the poison. Yeah. So, but... Yeah, because we haven't seen a fabricator do something like that before. I know. We don't know that much about the fabricators, and that's Mm kind of sad because they're always kind of viewed as like a lesser order of the Grisha. Yeah, but they're um, no help in battle and stuff like that. Right, and they're easy targets for the shoe to experiment on. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was sad when she died that Jesper wished that he was a stronger fabricator so he could have tried to save her. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and it's like, it's a good glimpse of how selfless his mom was that she would kill herself, maybe even, maybe unwittingly, but she would try and save this girl to the point where she um, absorbed all the po- the poison herself. Yeah. But it, it does still seem like a reason for why Jesper's not ever using his power. Yeah. Although I hope it, I hope that as he like confronts more of those memories, he's less afraid to use it. So I actually, I looked a little bit into poisons and antidotes this week because of his story about his mom. And then also kind of right near the end, they were trying to, they were talking about maybe the like root of the Jurta plant or something, or or the Mm -hmm. stalk of the Jurta plant might have some like calming properties that could potentially be an antidote for Jurta Perim or or just in general, kind of looking into it. But, um. What is this? I, I This is on, like, mentalfloss.com. I found six legendary po- poisons and one legendary antidote. That's what I... <laughs> the name of the is article. Is Hemlock one of them? <laughs> no, it wasn't, actually. Oh, okay. So, the first one, which I think is just, like, a legend of a... 
poison, or maybe it's not. I guess I could have done a little bit more research. But there's this ancient Chinese poison called gu, G-U. And the way you made it was you put a bunch of venomous animals into a box. So like snakes, <laughs> lizards, scorpions, centipedes, etc. And the idea was that they would eat each other until there was only one left. And then that Whoa. creature would have so many toxins from all of the things it had eaten that it would have a super venom <laughs> that you could use to kill or cause disaster or do other kind of like black magic type stuff. Oh my god. So which one survived? Um, so I think it didn't matter. Like it wasn't like one always survived. I think the yeah. idea was just whichever one whichever survived one comes out. Yeah. Oh, that's so fascinating. And then they would <laughs> they would like kill it and make a potion out of it, or they would extract the venom and yeah oh, okay. use that to to kill. I'm pretty sure that's not how that works, but that's still really interesting. <laughs> yeah. It, <laughs> I also don't know if all those things eat each other, but uh. <laughs> Okay. I mean, maybe they were just friends in the box, and they, like, got along really well, you know, and they had a party. Yeah. There was another kind of interesting story. There was um, a Persian king named Artaxerxes II, mm-hmm. and his mother was Parasatis, and she did not like her daughter-in-law. She was really mad because she thought her son, like, he used to love his mom, and then he, like, was in love with his wife, and she just, like, felt threatened by <laughs> How it. How dare he? <laughs> yeah. But they both were really suspicious of each other. So they had to eat from the same dishes prepared by the same cook so that, like, you couldn't poison in an easy way. Oh, gosh. So the way she got around this was the mom or the mother-in-law, she put poison on one side of her knife. And then she cut into a bird and cut it in half and gave the daughter-in-law the poisoned half, like the the half that had touched that part of the blade. And I guess the daughter died, like, a really painful death. But um, she convinced her husband that his mom was responsible. So the son then tortured all of the mom's servants and attendants. He executed her most trusted maidservant and exiled her. And they never saw each other again. So it kind of backfired. Is this a true story? I mean, it's from 445 BC. So it's based on something, but I don't know how. What an elaborate way to get rid of your (laughs) daughter-in-law. I know. (laughs) I feel really glad that Chad's mom likes me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think James's mom likes me so far, so, yeah. Um, and then there was this lady in the 17th century in Sicily named Julia Tofana, and she had a poison that she invented that was supposed to be colorless, tasteless, and odorless. Oh, like Iocane powder from the Princess Bride. <laughs> they think it might have, like, been arsenic in some way or something like that but it could you know based on the dose you could determine how quickly you could kill someone so that's also i think why they think it's arsenic like if you give a high dose you could kill someone immediately versus like a long slow decline um (sighs) years later so which is impossible to trace then yeah and she used to sell the she would sell it to women who wanted to get rid of their husbands so uh (laughs) she would put it into like makeup cosmetic like containers to sell to women and um she called it aqua tofana and it was sold as <laughs> the manna of saint nicholas of bari so there was in the tomb of saint nicholas there was an oil that supposedly oozed out of it and they would sell it for its miraculous curing properties mm-hmm. and she would use the same kind of bottles to do that um and oh. supposedly she did this from like her teenage years to the 70s 
And she just kept moving all across, like, Italy, staying ahead of the authorities and whatnot. And she, under torture, confessed to poisoning 600 men. Oh, my goodness. And when they eventually caught her, uh, they think they caught... There's some varying stories, but most of them involve her being caught in a church that she was taking sanctuary in. Um, But she and all of her accomplices, including her daughter, were executed or strangled by a mob. So there's some different stories there. And they think that Pope Clement the 14th, I think that is, I'm bad at Roman numerals, might have been a victim. (laughs) And they also think Wolfgang Mozart might have been a victim. No way. Yeah, I mean, he at least thought he was. I guess on his deathbed, Mozart said, I'm sure I've been poisoned. I think someone gave me aqua tofana. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Who would want to poison him? I don't know this whole story. I did see Amadeus, but I don't remember the end of his story very well. I don't I don't know who he thought did it, but... Oh my goodness, that's so cool. And scary. Yeah. And then there was... So on the happy side, I read about an antidote. So there was this uh, king in 134 BC. His name was Mithridates the sixth, Jupiter of Pontus. And he was really, really paranoid um, because his mom had poisoned his dad and and killed him when he was a little kid. So she like ruled while he was too young to rule. Um, and he thought that she was trying to install his brother to the throne. So when he started getting sick, he ran into the wilderness and he spent all of the time in the wilderness trying to develop immunity to every poison he could find. Oh my goodness. And so when he grew up as an adult, it, he had this reputation for being unpoisonable. Oh, that's so cool. And like the, the rumor is that he had created a universal antidote that could counter any poison. Um, and I guess he was defeated in the Third Mithridatic War, and Pompey the Great found a recipe that involved things like dried walnuts, figs, rue leaves, and a pinch of salt. Oh, and that's a recipe? They, he, <laughs> yeah, he, I mean, I guess they had the full recipe, but he brought it back to Rome, and they published it in some book. And they used to make a bunch of different versions of it in different complex formulas for 1800 years after that but i guess it was really hard to find all the different ingredients so it must have had more than those five ingredients i listed and took a really long time to produce so it was extremely expensive so and rare yeah that kind of reminds me of a, the bezoar from harry potter that is like the cure-all for most poisons oh yeah so there were some other interesting poison stories but those are my my few favorites and made me think about you know how do you create an antidote and you know all that stuff so well, I hope they come up with an antidote for this Jirda, because right now it is a really scary weapon. I mean, and if they don't, even if, like, they have to come up with an antidote at some point, or else. Yeah. Like, because it's over. not like they can restrict it. I mean, everyone's going to try and use it no matter what. And I forget who made the point, but they were like, it might have been really hard to make in the first place, but now that people know it's possible, like, it'll be recreated so quickly by another scientist. Yeah. Exactly. And that's so true, I think, in, like, even if you look at innovation, like, even, like, the space race or something, you know, it's kind of, mm-hmm. like, these crazy ideas, but then once someone knows it's, po- like, someone else has done it or it's possible, all of a sudden, like, more people are able to do it just because they know it's, even if you don't know how, but I think just, yep. like, yeah. Yep, I think that is a definite possibility. Um, so, th- you researched Jesper's backstory. Mm-hmm. 
And that's kind of funny because I researched Wyland's backstory a little bit. Okay, nice. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's talk about the backstory we learned about Wyland because it is heartbreaking. It is. I feel like I had this idea that his mom was still going to be alive once Kaz was looking for her properties, though. Once we found a property in her name, I like had a feeling that we were going to find her later. Oh, really? Yeah, but I had no idea that she would be locked up falsely in an insane asylum. It's just so sad that his dad told Wyland that she was dead and didn't let her mourn her. And, I mean, this entire time was sending the money, like, not just for her upkeep, but for their silence. So they wouldn't let anyone know that she was there. Well, it's sad because Wyland seemed to have memories before this where he thought his dad had really loved his mom. Yeah. But it seems like even at age eight or seven or whatever it was, he had already, like, devised a really elaborate plan to get rid of the two of them so that he could not be embarrassed. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because he says that as soon as he turned eight and his dad discovered he couldn't read, that's when he became a completely different person and started becoming really cruel. And then um, that was when, wasn't he eight when he sent his mom away? Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's when his mom died, supposedly. Yeah, and then, like, his whole plan to send Wyland to this music academy when really he hired people to kill him... Also, even that, I was just like, this guy is so evil. He couldn't just hire someone to kill his son. He had to, like, give him all this false story and hope. Like, just kill him at home so and then ca- tell everyone that he left. Like, Well, it's oh just so cowardly. It's, it's, it's horrible. And it's also just so cowardly. And it's so premeditated. It's, yeah. like, really evil, too. Yeah. And when he was like, how long am I going to be sent away for? And he was like, until people forget I had a son. Also, what was wrong with that plan? I mean, why didn't he just, I guess he didn't want to spend the money on it or risk someone finding out? I don't know. But that's the thing, like, at the end when um, Wiling, like, completely breaks down and he is like, this is my fault. It's my fault my mom's here because my dad needed an heir who he could use to inherit his business. And Jesper was like, no, she's here because your father's a monster. And there were a thousand other choices he could have made when he discovered your your reading problem. Yeah. Like, he could have done so many other things. Literally anything else. <laughs> Any other option would have been better. <laughs> oh, it's just so heartbreaking. And when he sees, when he visits her and he plays her his flute and she kind of sort of recognizes him. And then he sees all the paintings she did and they're all of him. It's just like, oh my gosh, that was such a hard scene. Yeah, I'm so curious to see how Jesper's dad and Wyland's mom play into the story in the second half. Well, it's kind of interesting because you see, um, I think it's like Nina is talking about Jesper's dad and she almost is acting a little bit jealous. And I think it's kind of interesting that, you know, in a lot of YA characters, there are are no parents. Mm -hmm. And in this book, there are a few. And I think the others were kind of looking at Jesper a little bit enviously because he had someone to take care of him. Like, at the end of the day, there would be someone to mourn him. Like, there would be someone to take care of him if he needed that. And the others have just yeah. been alone for so He can't long. say no mourners. <laughs> he really can't. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, for my research this week, I was kind of fascinated with the idea of people being unfairly or um, involuntarily committed to asylums. 
Because that's what happened. That's like right up there. I think I've told you my biggest fear is to be in jail for something I didn't do. Oh, yeah. But like same idea with being like locked up in an insane asylum for some, for when I'm not insane. Well, especially, I mean, there's there's a ton of research I could have done. And, and there's like a lot of um, historic background of women, especially being confined to asylums. If you're a quote unquote problem woman, woman or... You know, if, if your husband wanted a different wife, a younger wife, um, they could have you committed. If your kid had dyslexia, you know, just yeah, exactly. your <laughs> run-of-the-mill, you know, bogus <laughs> problems. And, and um, I guess in the book, she, Wyland's mother was committed because the bias was for hysteria, paranoia, and persecution disorder. And hysteria especially was a... a a diagnosis that was given um, primarily to women. And, I mean, it's just completely bogus. Like, the mindset for what hysteria was, was it was like the wandering womb sickness. Have you heard of this? Where, like, people thought that women's uteruses would come detached and would float around their body and, like, cause all these problems. <laughs> just, like, <laughs> no, crazy stuff. No, I have stuff. not heard that. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, so, I researched a little bit about bedlam, which is like, I don't know, it's one of the asylums that first comes to mind when you think about it. Mm -hmm. And so I read that Bedlam, it was originally called Bethlehem, and it was founded in 1247 by, by the church. And it was, it was never at the beginning a, a mental institution. It was a place where people could collect alms to support the Crusades. So it was run by a lot of religious figures who gradually started taking in sick people as, you know, a part of their charity. And then little by little, it became exclusively for um, sick patients and and exclusively for the mentally ill. So, and I mean, there's just a whole horrible history of the things that went on in Bedlam. I won't go into it, but um, at one point, Bedlam was open to the public. So if you were like, this is awful. If you are like a wealthy person, you could pay some money to essentially come in and look at the patients like it was a zoo. Ugh. And you could see like everything that was going on, which just is so sickening. It's also interesting to think like by sending all these people who shouldn't be there to asylums. What about the people who really need help in some way yeah. that aren't getting or, you know, like, I don't know. Yeah. Sorry. Who need <laughs> real treatment. Yeah. Real psychiatric treatment, for sure. And so then I started researching people who were unfairly or involuntary, involuntarily committed to asylums, and I came across this story that just blew me away. And I had never heard of it before. Maybe you have, but I was telling Chad, and he was like, what? I'm so nervous right now. <laughs> okay, so it was the case of a Hungarian doctor, and his name was Ignaz Simmelweis. And this is in the 19th century. So Ignace Simmelweis was a Hungarian physician, and he started witnessing a lot of his colleagues walking from, like, the bedside of dying patients and then going directly into the maternity ward to deliver babies. Ugh. And, yeah, exactly. And back then it was not, I guess it was not common practice for doctors to wash their hands between no. patients. Yeah. So he saw his colleagues not washing their hands, you know, going from the bedside of dying people and then d 
delivering a baby and there was a really high rate of infant mortality back then. So he suggested to his colleagues that they should start washing their hands before handling newborns. And he was like, we should do this to try and see if it reduces the rate of infant infant death. And his colleagues were completely outraged because he essentially was insinuating that it was the doctors themselves who were causing infants to die. Yeah. And so, you know, that was like a very um, serious accusation that they thought well, he was. And they didn't have any of that. Like people didn't even wash that much back then, did they? I mean, like, let alone wash their hands in between stuff, but wasn't even washing kind of like, or maybe. Right. What, what there was no, was it? it was um, the 19th century. So um, like the mid 1800s. Okay. So the theory, germ theory had not been discovered yet. Yeah. And so um, his medical community was outraged and, he, but he kept arguing with his peers and to his higher ups. And he just kept arguing this point until he was dismissed from his position at the Vienna general hospital. And he was completely ostracized from the medical community. And eventually he, um, you know, I mean, he, he lost his job. He was destitute. He fell into a state of depression, but he would not stop voicing his belief. And they committed him to an, to a mental institution in 1865 and 14 days after he was committed, he was demanding to be released, and he ended up being beaten violently by the workers, and he eventually died from a blood infection. Oh my goodness, because someone didn't wash their hands. And he was 47 years old, and he was just arguing that doctors wash their hands. And so 20 years later, um, the French microbiologist Louis Pasteur began studying the germ theory of disease, and he you know, basically said what Semmelweis was saying, you need to wash your hands before you deliver babies. And so doctors started doing that practice. And unsurprisingly, the rate of infant mortality during childbirth decreased dramatically. And so I thought this was fascinating. So Semmelweis um, posthumously was called the savior of mothers. And he coined a new term. It's called the Semmelweis reflex. And this term refers to um, the reflex people have to reject new ideas or practices when they oppose already established norms or theories or beliefs. So it's like a warning not to fear new ideas, the Semmelweis reflex. Well, don't they also say, I mean, like, genius and insanity are, like, so closely linked or whatever. Like, people who have, like, really great ideas are so often thought to be crazy until someone can prove it. Yeah. Yeah. This is from Listiverse and historicengland.org. Just to cite my sources. But yeah, I thought that was just such a sad, sad story of someone who like knew what they were doing and was institutionalized. I also, I have so much respect for him that like even after losing his job and like, you know, like enough bad stuff had already happened to him. You'd think he'd like be like, okay, whatever you guys. No, he never gave but up. But he, yeah, to the point where, yeah. That's crazy. It really is. So, yeah, that was my... <laughs> Hopefully Wyland's mom gets out. <laughs> Gosh, I really hope she does. Um, and it seems like that's kind of Wyland's new purpose now, because we see at the end when Kaz, he, he tells Wyland, like, I knew you were going there. I knew you were going to visit her. I needed you to understand how bad your father really was, because that's the only way I knew you would be committed to the cause. Yeah, although sometimes I wonder, like... Does Kaz really know as much as he says, or does he just, is he just like a good poker face and then like turns every situation? Like sometimes I wonder if he like is like, oh, that's what you did. And then he 
like he like processes it and then it's like I knew that already and blah 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 like <laughs> I don't know no I th- I don't I think he knows everything <laughs> he's all knowing yeah at least with his secret gatherer working for him so what other um, new developments are you enjoying right now um well I uh well the other thing I looked up because I was like really I was kind of enjoying their first part of the heist where they were trying to get Smeet to oh yeah like you know like just some of that I just thought it was like kind of clever and funny and when he stole the dog whistles yeah he stole the dog whistle but just like all the different roles that he had everyone playing um Mm -hmm. and I actually I did a little bit of research too because I loved how he saw the little girl Hannah and like started so friendly and then basically told her he's the monster that lives under her bed and she was like oh yeah i've heard of you and he's gonna kill her mom and dad and her favorite dog if she tells anyone she saw him yeah she's gonna kill or he's gonna kill all the dogs and leave her favorite one last like it was just like i don't know how old this girl was but young enough to still believe in monsters and yeah but I actually, I looked into why children believe in the boogeyman or oh, monsters I under their it. bed a little bit. Um, because I guess, like, usually kids are around four or five years old when they start to think about that. And just in general, children are less, they're, they're more reactive to things like sounds at night and waking up because they haven't been doing it as long. Um, so anything that could be considered a threat, like, they tend to be aware of. But mm-hmm. once they start to develop kind of like the imagination side they, their imagination at age four and five is really vivid so that's when they start to turn all of those threats into monsters or boogeymen or things in the oh. dark um so it's actually like pretty normal and they think it might have had to do somewhat with evolution because there were like back in the day when it got dark there were a lot of things that could come out and get you <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah that's true but uh so i was actually i was looking at some different legends so there's um, this Latin American legend about the sack man or the bag man. Oh, that who, sounds scary. Yeah. He, he used to carry off kids in oh, sacks. Oh, no. But they said it, it was common in Haiti. So I was asking Megan if she had heard of it or if like any of her kids ever said anything about it. And um, she wasn't sure, but she asked some of her the people that she works with down there. And one of them, who's a Haitian American, was like, yeah, I've heard about that. But he actually knew more about El Coco, who is kind of a similar thing. But he's he's described as a ghost who has a pumpkin head (laughs) that hides under children's beds and either kidnaps them or eats them if they don't obey their parents. And he supposedly has red eyes and he hides in closets or under the bed. So that's kind of like common. A lot of these stories are really common in the fact that they, you know, hide under the bed, hide in a closet. If you don't listen to your parents or you don't go to bed on time, then whatever the name of it is, is going to eat you or just kidnap you or, or something like that. Um, but one of the creepier ones I read about was there's, um, an Egyptian Arabic word or phrase, Abu Regal Masluka. That's probably completely wrong, but it translates to the man with the burnt leg. Oh gosh. And apparently this man, when he was a child, did not listen to his parents and he got burnt. And now he hunts naughty children to cook them. Oh, my God. (laughs) So just kind of some brutal, funny stories. That's so terrifying. But then I asked my friend who just spent two years in 
Botswana if, like, because he worked with some students, too, if they had any version of, like, a boogeyman story. And mm-hmm. he was just like, Google camel spiders. And I was like, what? So Camel spiders? Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> these are real. <laughs> these are, they're, and they're not poisonous or anything, but they're kind of like a cross between a scorpion or and a spider. And they're really, really ugly. You should look them up. No, thank you. <laughs> but um, I guess they are... I forget the word, uh, but they're also called like sun spiders and they don't like to be in the sun. So they'll like run up to try to get into shade or, or whatever. And when they run, they sound like they're screaming. Oh no. And he said like, you could hear them when you were in bed scratching (gasps) at the doors. (laughs) Where does he live? So that was when he was in Botswana, but they're like desert. They're like really common in desert areas. Oh my god! So that's and why they're, you, they're and, called the camel spider. And could you imagine being a kid and being like, "Mom, I hear someone screaming." They're like, "Oh, that's just the spider that is really terrifying and could kill you." And I mean, they really—they look like a weird cross between a scorpion and a spider, like the worst of both oh, no. types. And there's there's a lot of different like urban legends about them too. And um, even though I guess they don't have venom, but like I guess their bite can hurt. And there's a lot of like people who claim that like worse things have happened because they've been bit by one of these creatures but um there's been no proof of that <laughs> so. so did your parents ever when you were little did your parents ever have like a scary monster that they were like you better do this or so and so will come get you uh my sister and i didn't. scared ourselves so <laughs> my sister actually was talking about this <laughs> when i was asking about the boogeyman but we had, like, a basement at our house, and at the top of the unfinished part of the basement, there was, like, a piece of plastic sticking through the door. And we used to play all kinds of imagination games, usually where I was a superhero and she was a princess. Um, <laughs> but uh, we, like, invented this evil creature called the Fingernail Man, and that was his fingernail <laughs> poking through the door. That's but then so we, terrifying. But then, yeah, I don't know how we came up with this, but then we were so scared we would not go in the basement alone, like... I remember, like, even as a like, old enough kid to know everything about how that wasn't scary, I would still, like, run by that door. The fingernail because man. <laughs> the fingernail man. Yeah, I don't know. We had really active imaginations, but we were that's like, great. oh, yeah, that's someone's, his finger, he's trying to open the door and come through. And literally all of our games from then on, we had the fingernail man and his band of monsters. We were not creative with that name. And we would, like, wrap uh, jump ropes around and, like, crazy like belts and like over our shoulders and they'd be like our magic uh belts that we could like do stuff with <laughs> that's like the game we to played all the him. time oh my yeah gosh, that's so funny oh my gosh oh i didn't really have any um i was afraid of nothing when i was <laughs> not true at all you were probably um, fascinated by the monster under your i bed. kind of liked it <laughs> i read a lot of scary books when i was little too um the only thing that that makes me remember is um so my neighbors, we lived next door to a family and they had four kids and it was around Christmas time. And so, you know, like when it's Christmas time, your parents are often saying like, if you misbehave, they're like, you better not misbehave because Santa Claus could be watching, you know? Yep. Yep. Um, like you better do this or you won't get any presents. So my grandfather dressed up like Santa Claus every year and he came over one night dressed up as Santa Claus, you know, to surprise me and my cousins. And he thought to be nice, he would go next door and visit our neighbors. 
And so it's like snowing outside and he's dressed in his Santa Claus costume and he goes next door. But at that moment, my um, my one neighbor, she was little and she was misbehaving and her parents were like, listen, you better stop this because Santa Claus is watching you. And they were like, you don't know. He could be looking in the back window right now. And then she turns and my grandfather's like dressed up as Santa Claus, waving and they just came over and they were just peeing themselves laughing they were like you have no idea how great timing that was like, that is so funny <laughs> also, like our kids will listen to us now for <laughs> at least two years my mom used to tell us that it was santa's birds were watching and it was like oh. <laughs> i think it was like black crows but uh, <laughs> they would like come out in the winter time around us and she'd be like oh yeah those are santa's birds if they catch you doing anything so like anytime we saw a black bird, we'd be like, oh no, we have to be good. <laughs> That's actually really good because they're probably everywhere. So like, you know, you had to behave. Well, now kids have, kids have those little elves now. Oh, elf the on the shelf. shelf. Have you it's seen that? so creepy. I'm so glad that I was too old for that. Yeah. They're, it's terrifying. It's and a lot, just, like, it's, it's a so lot of work. work. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> what I'm. It's time to move an elf around. Like, it's kind of fun. I've helped out with my cousin's elf on the shelf a couple of times, like to come up with like a prank that the elf pulled overnight or whatever. But I'm like, I can't imagine doing this every single night for years. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and then clean it up afterwards because. Oh, the, well, that was, some, those are some really good stories. Um, yeah. I, so I did like the beginning when um, they're trying to get into Smeet's house. You see Kaz being a lot more brutal because Inej is at stake. Um, and then the other kind of heist I really liked was when they do the prisoner exchange. Oh, like, yeah. Um, Inej and Alice, then ex-wife. Alice was such a funny character, too. <laughs> I know. I how everyone was just, like, annoyed with her. <laughs> She's singing again. <laughs> she just won't stop singing. And I love when they go to kidnap her, and they show up at her house dressed in these comedy masks. And they're all, like, it would be like if an intruder came into your house wearing a mask to kidnap you, and she, her only reaction is to be like, oh, is this a play? <laughs> Yeah, she seems a little airheady. <laughs> but maybe her kid will be able to read. Who knows? Oh my gosh. But it was just such a, it was just, it was funny, like, seeing them. Because, you know, none of them are really bad people, but they just had no idea how to deal with her. And, like, Matthias was the only one who was like, guys, she's a pregnant lady. Like, we need to take care of her. Like, And he was, like, giving her cookies and, like, massaging her feet. Well, you also have to think most of these, I mean, these kids are, like, in their late teens. They've been, yeah. like, without their family. Like, but Matthias might have been the only one who's, like, seen a pregnant lady, like, or interacted with a pregnant lady. Yeah, most, I mean, very probably. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it was even funny when they were, when Kaz was gone and they were all just, like, talking around her and, like, you know, you can't give her my cookies and, like, <laughs> that was a funny scene. It was good. And it was also great when they were doing the prisoner exchange and he had Kaz does like distributed all of those Mr. Crimson masks yeah. and then they escaped and everyone was dressed like Mr. Crimson and they were able to get away. I thought that was like really brilliant. Yeah, except it was interesting timing because the shoe were also attacking right then. That's and true. Yeah. I'm really nervous about when that becomes a real issue. I know, me for, too. For our friends. Especially since, like, Nina, I mean, she's still really struggling with the addiction. I didn't realize how bad it was 
until this part of the book when she, I mean, she can't essentially can't use her power. And when she tries to, it's like, it's not a some other power. power. Yeah. yeah. It's like a fabricator power. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious to hear more about that too, but it's not even regular. Like it's a unique power, yeah. but it is, it's more fabricator in nature, but, and she doesn't, she has no idea how to use it or control it. Like it's, she's doing stuff and things are happening, but not what she's anticipating or, you know, in control. Yeah, of. And I just feel so bad for her because like her power is so important to her. And now, like, every time she uses it, she gets these pangs for, like, you know, she needs more drug, more perem. Yeah. I just hope she can, like, come through it okay. Well, and just seeing her struggle with that, like, it's just, it's hard. Like, I mean, knowing that she's, like... Oh, yeah. You know, even when she, like, tried to, like, seduce... (laughs) Matthias. Yeah, Yeah. just, like... Just to get more. But but not because... Yeah, I know. And she said such horrible things to him, and then... Yeah, that was really hard to watch. And he was really good to her, though, throughout it, it seems. Yeah, at least everyone knows that that's what happened. But I also, again, she's keeping secrets. Like, I'm afraid that she's going to get herself in a situation that she can't handle because she hasn't admitted that she doesn't know what's going on with her power. Yeah, that's a good Although it seems like most of the gang kind of knows that she's not tip-top shape. It it was also fun to see Zoya and... um, Oh, Tamar! Yeah, and Jenya, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. I love that. It was nice to see some a little some old faces. Yeah. Sneak peek. And yeah. I like how um I really like how you see more of Nina and Matthias like flirting and I mean, they're just so cute together. I love when she dresses up in the Fjordin peasant oh, yeah. outfit and <laughs> and it's like, like really dowdy and conservative and he's like swooning over her in this outfit. <laughs> yeah. That was cute. And I mean, he is, he does come across as so old fashioned and like he doesn't understand innuendo and he gets flustered so easily, but it's still kind of sweet when she was like, why haven't you kissed me yet? And he was like, well, you know, normally we would, I would meet your parents and then I would have a proper (laughs) courtship and I'd bring you gifts. I like how, I like how like detailed it was too. It was like, I'd meet your parents and then we would spend three like chaperone dates together and then I would... Perhaps have a chance, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I really liked that. But I also liked when she was like, you know what, nothing is going to be proper about us. I know you have this notion of how you want the romance to go, but we really just have to work with what we have. (laughs) Yeah, let's not wait for something that's never going to come. I really am excited to like see them be together. Yeah. I love them. And it's good that they're not, I mean, like they're still working through a lot of it, but at least they're admitting that they like each other now i feel like it was a little bit yeah everyone else knew and it was taking too long and just for two people to come so far like they are mortal enemies yeah you know like and especially because they're both soldiers raised to like almost not quite hunt each other i guess he hunted her and she avoided him but Mm -hmm. still like that's not like a casual like oh i heard that someone in the distant land is you know like it's not like casual it's like serious all their instincts are formed to yeah just not trust each each other other. yeah yeah and i like how we got more of uh, matthias's backstory not a ton but a little bit like the story about how the driscoll have to um raise a wolf and they each get one and the wolf is like their warrior brother and they go into battle with them but then I, i like lost it because he was talking about his own wolf who like never saw him come home yeah. And I was just like, oh, I can't handle that. 
I know. I also love how there's wolves in this story, too. <laughs> of course. You can't escape them. <laughs> there have to be. Yeah, even him, like, it was kind of interesting to hear he, like, didn't really buy into, like, the friendship brotherhood side of being a soldier and just, like, he was really good at what he did and then kind of cut corners to get his crazy wolf. And, so, like, even hearing that side of him was kind of interesting because I feel like he's also kind of struggling that with this group as much as he's, like, trying yeah. to make friends. He, like, isn't quite, like, 100% part of the group yet either, so. Yeah. No, I agree. But what? it is kind of... N- what? Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, what about Inej and Kaz's relationship right now? What are your thoughts on <sighs> Okay, so I think one of the hardest parts about watching Inez being kidnapped by Venek was her fear that Kaz was never going to come for her. And, like, she she knew he was, but there was just this doubt because, I mean, when he threatens to break her legs. Oh, my goodness. That was, like, a horrible oh. threat, too, when he wanted to shatter her legs so they can – I was like, oh, my goodness. Of all things. Yeah. Oh. And and, and, honest, and her and her reaction was she was like – he won't come for me if you break me. Like, yeah. I and she believed it. Him. Yeah. And she believed it. Yeah. And she was like, if I'm not, if I can't be the spider, if I can't be the rave, he has no use for me. And I'm it, an investment. Like that whole, mm-hmm. yeah. And that was like really disheartening that she kind of, he's, she still thinks that he views her as an investment to be protected and not so much as a person. Well, you know, it's not true. Like, you still see, even if he maybe won't admit it, that he will do anything to rescue her. And at the end, when he, like, has that admission where he was like, I will come to you, and if I can't walk, I'll crawl. Like, I will do anything to come to you. Yeah. Although you also saw, and part of why she's probably picking up on him being cold before that point was he, like, blamed himself for showing any you know, affection for her in front of Van Eck and then yeah. thinks that's, well, like, like, truly, it's true. That's yeah. why she was targeted. So he's like, he started putting up more walls because he cared so much. And yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's just like, it's this whole back and forth where like, he starts to open up. And as soon as he does, really bad things happen. Yeah. And of course, I mean, it has to be, it has to be so tough to allow yourself to be vulnerable again, given what he's been through, especially, you know, how he lost his brother and how he's just had to be so tough all the time. Um, Cause I mean, it's true. Like the more you love someone, the more you have to lose. Do you think she's going to get hurt because she doesn't have a ro- uh, net in the next part of no, the No, I actually think she's going to get hurt because she has a net. I thought they weren't going to be able to do the net now because there's not three people to hold it. Oh, I, mean, I the only the only thing that I, re- I remember reading was she was like, why the net? And he was like, basically, like, don't argue with me. You have, like, you have a net because I say you have a net. I remember that part. And then I thought at the end when Nina was like, I'm not going to help you unless we get the other Grisha out. And they kind of divided forces. I thought there was a oh, point yeah. where he said something like, well, we need three people to man the net. And they only had, like, one person still available. Ooh, okay. And then she responded with, like, I don't need it. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Because I almost feel like with someone like Inej, like, if there's a net, that would almost be more distracting. I don't know. Oh, I I am a little nervous for everyone to be doing this last bit of the mission. I just, they're so, it was so rushed, and they're so spread out, and there's so many, there's, like, multiple enemies. Like, I kind of feel like, I don't know. Yeah. 
Obviously, we have another 250 pages, so something's going to go wrong. I mean, it's a really good plan, like, to buy up all the sugar shares and destroy Venex portion. And then I love that he out- bought shares in Venex name to kind of make it seem like he knew. Yeah, it's really devious. He, kno- he knows devious. what he's doing. I mean, he's been, he's learned how to do this kind of stuff for a while now. Although, if he if he was able to do something like this from before, why didn't he just, I don't know. I he needs the weevil that Kauai, Kauai developed. Oh, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. That's or, um, true. He needed a way to destroy it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's so good because he really just goes straight for the heart of it. Because, I mean, if you think about it, Vanek's business is the most important thing to him. It's more important than Wyland. His son? Yeah. It's, I mean, it is all he has. And so if Kaz takes that away from him and damages his reputation, I mean, he said he could also hang for it. But I think the worst part would be just the end of his empire and no one would trade with him again. Yeah, but in their part of the world, like, money is power, is trade is everything, you know, like yeah. that, like, you can hang for it because... It's a serious that's crime. That's, like, the way everyone is there a little bit. And it is it is kind of interesting. Um, oops, I just forgot what I was going to say. We've got a lot going on here. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many moving pieces. <laughs> Oh, no, I was just going to say, I like how Kaz doesn't get, like, he doesn't go for the easy, obvious, like, hit him quick and hit him hard. He's very meticulous about how the, how he's going to go about brick destroying someone. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that is what is so remarkable, just his patience. His patience to lie low, play the game, put every perfect little piece into play, and then attack. I mean, it's really masterful. So I'm really, I think something bad is going to happen to Van Egg. I think he should be very scared. But I'm sure there'll be lots of twists along the way and like unexpected, more unexpected consequences. Yeah. And I hope he goes after his true enemy before the end as well. Oh yeah. There wasn't a lot of development with Pekka Rollins, was there? No, not really this time. I don't, I'm wondering what his end game is going to be with him. Cause you, I mean, you know, he's going to bring him down. I just don't know how. Because right now the only game that's in play is destroying Vanek. Yeah, they're trying to like wrap that up. But then they also have this... Again, I want to know more about what's going on with this shoe thing. Do you think they're going to get uh, Nina and Matthias and the other Grisha and everyone's going to go have to save them next? Or do you have any predictions? Mm, um, I honestly... I don't know. I mean, I think they're going to get the Grisha out that they have safely. But I don't know... I feel like the um, shoe people are definitely going to come back in a bad way. Yep. I just don't know how. I also thought it was interesting that his, like, coffee trick, the coffee trick, they think that they could smell the Grisha, and he was like, where? Coffee. <laughs> yeah. So that it disguises other smells. Like, I'm sure it'll work. <laughs> yeah, that was, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> I just thought it was funny. <laughs> it seemed like kind of an easy way out, and I don't know if it'll actually work. But we'll see. Any other predictions for the second half? No. Um, predictions for the second half. I I really don't know. I think Alice is probably going to sing some more. <laughs> Do you think all six are going to live? Oh, God. I hope so. Oh, if Inej dies, that's it for Kaz. He'll just be, it'll be like Adelina. Like, there's no redeeming him if she dies. Yeah. She's the only one I feel like could die right now. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like... I feel like Nina probably won't die because she already had that brush with death and came through it okay. Um, it would be really ironic if Wyland ended up dying since yeah. he was like 
the whole, you know, it, it started a lot of this into action with his father trying to kill him. and Or what if Kaz finally gets his revenge but kills himself in the process? Not kills himself, like, suicide, but, like, dies. Oh, my gosh. I didn't even think about Kaz dying. I guess that's the most likely out of all of them would be Kaz dying. Like, because there's been so many consequences of him trying to get revenge, maybe that will be, like, the ultimate one. And actually, I don't hate that. I mean, I don't want want him to die, but, like, I felt like if he died, it would kind of free Inez to go back to her parents and, you know, do her dream of becoming a slaver. Yeah, I just, I also feel so bad because they haven't even gotten their kiss yet. They're like, if they get cut too short, they haven't even had a little bit of a romance. But I feel like out of all of the couples, I feel like she would be able, she would be strong enough to move on from that. Yeah. I don't know. And she also has the most going on outside of that. Yeah, she still has parents. Because she's not, you know, she's not reliant. I feel like most of the other people, like their only real long-term goal right now is kind of around I kind of want him to die now because I kind of want her to be free. Yeah, it'll be interesting. That's the couple I'd most predict someone dying, one way or the other. Oh, well, I guess we'll find out. (laughs) (sighs) Okay, so I owe you a joke this week, right? Yes. Okay. Um, I told this joke to my cousin's boyfriend um, because I met him this weekend, and he loves dad jokes. Okay, this is And it was the first time I met him. (laughs) And this is not... My cousin's fiance. This is my cousin's fiance. Oh, this Cecilia. is a different one. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, and he was like telling all these really funny jokes when we were out, and I and we were the only ones laughing at them. <laughs> <laughs> we need to get him as a guest now. I know. That's what I said. I was like, he needs to listen. Um, okay, so what do you call it when Batman leaves church early? Uh, bat, bat, X, I don't know. What? Christian Bale. <laughs> <laughs> so my sister and I actually got into a huge fight over this joke. Why? <laughs> we got into a fight and we didn't talk to each other for like three days. Because <laughs> I wrote out the joke to her and I typed it Christian Bale, B-A-L-E, like the actor. And she was like adamant that I should have spelled it Bale, like B-A-I-L. I actually think about that a lot. Like, play on words. Which way should you write it out? <laughs> and we both felt, like, so strongly that the, that the other was right that we, like, did, we didn't talk for, like, days because we were so angry. Should we, should we uh, make shirts for this, too? We can have a team Christian Bale one way and a team we'll Christian just, Bale. <laughs> you know what? We'll just spell it one way on one t-shirt and one way on the other t-shirt and we'll see which one sells better <laughs> okay we'll settle the dispute that way <laughs> i really have to get this t-shirt thing going i know because we i mean we're almost a year in and we still don't have any t-shirts that'll be my 2018 goal t-shirts <laughs> uh okay that's a good goal all right um thank you everyone who's been listening and following us um we our Instagram account has it's bringing us so much joy. It's such a pleasure to talk to all of you guys. Um, there's such a great community of book lovers on Instagram, and we're really grateful for you. Um, so thank you. And if you want to look at our Insta- Instagram account, it's at EvanKTalkYA. And you can also send us uh, an email if you want to tell us a dad joke or um, tell us a series you think we should read. We can be reached at mnktalkya at gmail.com, and we would love to hear from you. 
Yep, and in both cases, and is written out A-N-D. Oh, yes, that's true. M-A-N-D-K. Talk <laughs> Y-A. Awesome. All right. Well, I will talk to you next week, and I'm going to get reading. Okay. Bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.